So how are you doing? This is National Labor Day weekend, so. So, um, hello to the pajama people, wherever you are. And remember, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So I want to begin by showing you this picture, the one you've seen a lot. This is uh, a reconstruction by two forensic anthropologists of um, two male skeletons that were found in the geographical area where Jesus lived. And so they reconstructed this and, and were saying, this is more or less what a typical male looked like. And so um, the icon may be close too, we don't know. But Jesus was a Jewish mystic in the prophetic tradition. And I'm going to be talking about every aspect of that sentence today. Keeping in mind how what is called the new cosmology is causing us to rethink everything about how we have thought and believed for a long time. That world is over. And the world, that's the no longer world that we are moving away from. And uh, we are charting this course toward the world that is not yet um, using the teachings of Jesus. By the way, the, the cosmos is constantly evolving in, ver in various ways. There's nothing new about that. What's new is our understanding of what is going on in this field of energy. And even though some of the brightest minds we have are still scratching their heads about the meaning of some of what Jesus taught, the, the heart of his message is really easy to understand. There were those, those at the bottom of and most oppressed by the domination system of the time who found his message so liberating that after his death, they experienced what they call resurrection or new life. And a movement of joy, forgiveness, and compassion was started that's still going on today. Though that at the top of the domination system, um, the political and religious leaders, they got the message of Jesus at, their, at the headspace level, at the ego level, maybe better than his followers did. If you read any of the four narratives that we have of the Jesus story, Jesus seems constantly to be chiding those who followed him for not getting the message. You don't understand. Have I been with you so long and you still don't get it? Kind of thing. And, and, and so both his disciples and those at the top of the chain said, give us a sign. Show us that what you are saying is true. And it was in that context that he said, I've come to start a fire on this earth and how I wish it were blazing right now. I've come to change everything, turn everything right side up how I long for it to be finished. Do you think I came to smooth things over and make everything nice? Not so. I've come to disrupt and confront. 
Now that's what we talked about last week. And um, there's nothing there's nothing about this that I like. I do not like change. I do not like to be disrupted. I do not like to be confronted. I bet you don't either. I have a well-established routine in my life. I, I, I like to get up in the morning, get my coffee, and do my morning practice. Now, that lets you know right now that coffee and spiritual practice are not incompatible. <laughs> and when it gets disrupted, I don't like it. It's kind of crazy, I know. I want things to be different, but I don't want to change. Now, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody in this room knows what that's like. You want to lose weight, but you don't want to eat less. You want to be healthier, but you don't want to exercise. You want to love your neighbor, but you don't even like them. You want the benefits of the things you hear me talk about in here, but you don't want to have a daily spiritual practice. Some of you do. Those of you who are, who are going to heaven do. <laughs> but it is clear that Jesus disrupted and confronted, and he did so, so much. He made such a nuisance of himself that they executed him. He took the system on. While we were in Santiago, we went to a church, the Church of St. Francis in Santiago. There's a church on every corner in many of these cities. And there was a priest there who, this was his first church. He had only been ordained for six weeks. And I thought when I saw him, I bet the young women who go to this church have a hard time concentrating on the mass. I mean, he was gorgeous. He is gorgeous. And one of the things that he was proudest of in this church was a sculpture of Jesus that is unlike anything I have ever seen. And it's unlike, uh, I don't know there is another one like it anywhere. It depicts Jesus as almost being eager to get this execution thing going. This longing, on a way, passionate. Uh, it's an amazing piece of work. So like John the Baptist, Jesus takes the system on, and then he turns and says, follow me. You put those two sentences together. He takes the system on and says, do what I'm doing. And there we get uncomfortable. So those in power especially did not like what he had to say. But he goes on, when you see the clouds coming in from the west, you say, storm's coming, and you're right. And when the wind comes out of the south, you say, this will be a hot one, and you're right, you frauds. You know how to tell a change in the weather, so why don't you know how to interpret the present time? We were out to dinner on Friday night with my daughter and son-in-law, and um, they, they're not here today. And he said, uh, we're not going to be able to come Sunday. What are you talking about? And so I quoted this passage about 
how we're able to tell the weather patterns, but we can't read the signs of the time. And um, he pulls his phone out and pulls up the, the hurricane that is coming ashore now. Is it not? Is it over the Bahamas? Is it still a five? And he showed me all the paths, all the models of the hurricane, like 13 different models. And I said, well, maybe we're not so good at telling the weather <laughs> at all. I doubt anybody here is a trained meteorologist. Is it, are you? Anybody? Unless somebody here has the um, business intuitive ability of somebody like Warren Buffett, you, you likely can't say for sure what the market's going to do. Looking back on events, people are able to say, you know, we should have seen that coming. Should people on the eve of the French Revolution have been able to tell that was going to happen? Should greed, whether corporate or individual and overreaching, be known to produce consequences that are disastrous? Since the crash of two Boeing 737 MAX jets, I've been reading about that because I'm very interested in flying and aviation, and the experts in the field seem to say very clearly that it was a mistake to allow Boeing to regulate itself because they were in their ambition to meet deadlines on delivering planes, they were able to cut various corners. And that had logical consequences. So historically, what has happened to countries when uh, what has happened to countries when absolute trust is put in military might? What happens to societies where wealth falls into the hands of just a few? Why is it that war and revolution take most cultures by, surpri by surprise? Events that are initially described as unbelievable calamities eventually are seen as things whose occurrence was inevitable. I noticed in the New York Times today that Malcolm Gladwell has a new book. And, and I don't know what you know about Malcolm Gladwell's work. He, he plays to disastrous reviews. But people love his writing. And, and uh, a number of years ago, he wrote this book called The Tipping Point about how things can go along for a while and then uh, there's one thing that seems to cause an avalanche of change. In psychology, we call this the stacking effect. And when I was learning about the stacking effect in clinical training, Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio had just gotten married. And somebody asked Marilyn Monroe, how are you going to live with this guy after the glamorous life that you have had and he's retiring from baseball. How's that going to be for you? And she purred, it's going to be wonderful. All Joe likes to do is sit around and eat sandwiches and watch television. <laughs> Nine months later, they got divorced. And at the end, Miss Monroe asked about that. She said, I had to get out. All he wanted to do was sit around and watch TV 
and eat sandwiches. So you know the stacking effect comes from that fable about the camel who has a burden of straw. And they keep putting straw on the camel until one straw more stacks and breaks the camel's back. So things in the time of Jesus were at a stacking point, tipping point. And he sensed it. And he pushed against that system. And what he pushed against was the domination system. Now, I want to preface what I'm about to say by saying this talk today, as I hope all of what I do, is meant to be a message of, of hope. I want you to keep in mind that the Jesus story does not end in defeat, nor does it end in the kind of victory that we in the Western world think of wins, like football victories. And, and let me also say, trying to be as clear as possible, that among my many teaching goals, one that has moved to the top of the list is doing what I can do to contribute to the healing of the divisions that are tearing the world and the culture and various subgroups apart. This is a job we have to do from the inside out. So how we hear the Jesus story, how we hear the questions that he asks, how we hear the the content of his teachings depends on our own context. So I'm borrowing from Morewood when I say, how do we imagine what Jesus is saying when he says, I didn't come to smooth things over to, but to confront? And you know how to read the weather, but you don't know how to read the signs of the time. How do we learn how to imagine what our responses are to that? And I'm not talking about how do we learn in history over ages, but in our own specific context. What was the family where you began to get your religious instruction? Or the context in which you began to understand things? I grew up in Tennessee, as you know, just west of Cherokee Native American people. It was nothing to walk out into the fields around the house where I grew up in Tennessee and find Indian artifacts, arrowheads, pottery shards, that sort of thing. It was, it was common. And I grew up in a culture where, I kid you not, we wore Confederate uniforms, Confederate hats, Confederate flags were everywhere. Um, I grew up virtually on a Civil War battlefield around Murfreesboro, the Battle of Franklin, Battle of Nashville. Um, war enactments were a big part of the culture. Reenactments were a big part of the culture. They still may be, for as far as I know. It was during my growing up time that all of the ethos that had been taken for granted began to be challenged. The Civil Rights Movement was just getting started. The Supreme Court decision about desegregation occurred the year I graduated from high school. And, and there was a lot that went on before that that was sort of taken for granted. Then all of a sudden it gets challenged. The tipping point had been reached. And, of course, all the, the Jim Crow law, rules and laws were firmly in place where I grew up. Stores and public uh, places that had water fountains, had two water fountains, 
one label white only and the other labeled colored. My mother and father were wonderful people and they were racist. My father actively can't, worked actively to keep black people from voting. And yet, he had a black woman charged with taking care of his kids. I mean, the cognitive dissonance in that is just absolutely amazing. I learned from, from all of that. I experienced the dissonance of being made to go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, vacation Bible school, revivals, all of that stuff, and was taught to sing Jesus loves all the children of the world, brown and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Then I would go home to observe and hear something that was 180 degrees opposite of that. I knew that was not right. And so do you. We went on Friday to see the documentary about Molly Ivins called Raise Hell, <laughs> The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. I, I recommend it to you. I mean, how often do you see a documentary that makes you laugh? And this one will. And what she said in her interview, in one of her interviews, was something I had articulated in junior high. When I, when I asked, why were there separate water fountains in McClellan's? That was a five and dime store that we went to. My mother said, because those people are dirty. But in every place you entered, the colored water fountains were pristine clean, and the whites were filthy. And Ivan said, and I experienced, that when you get it, that you're being lied to, things begin to fall apart. The American dream that most of us enjoy was not, has not been equally available to all people. When Lincoln gave his speech about a government of the people, by the people, for the people, one, by the way, that I had to memorize in grammar school, it didn't really mean for everyone. And when I pointed this out at the dinner table in our home, <clears throat> I was told, quote, anybody who put their mind to it could have what we have. I knew that wasn't true. Not everybody has had an equal chance to advance and, and achieve. People, Native American, African American especially, have been left behind and marginalized in the pursuit of their dream and then devalued because of their lack of achievement in a system that has been rigged against them. And if you, anyone here can show me that this is not true, please do so. I would sleep better. But one of my points is that not all people in places of privilege and power can see this, not even to this day. We have difficulty reading the signs of the time. This history of ours as a culture has consequences, and the consequences are contributing to our lives and culture now. And the same thing was true in the time of Jesus. I think we make the scribes and the Pharisees and religious leaders bad people. They were not bad people. They were just doing their job and living with the light that they had. 
like us, they too moved in their own self-interest. So knowing more and, and knowing more clearly about both his time and our time might be able to help us answer the question, can you can't you read the, the signs of the time? So we are Easter people. How did Easter come about? Easter is about new life, new hope, new possibility. Well, there were events that led up to all of that. In their book, The Last Week, What the Gospels Really Teaches About Jesus' Final Days in Jerusalem, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan tell us that uh, they talk about the domination system that led up to the, the crucifixion. And they say that the domination system has three features. And, and, and the first of these features is um, political oppression. Now, what this means is that a significant number of people are shut out from having any real impact, any real effect on the political system, so that real and effective power rests in the hands of a few people who have taken control primarily through their wealth. The next feature of the domination system is economic exploitation. And this second feature is in many ways dependent on the first. And essentially what it means is that the powerful set up structures to keep those without power in their place economically so that those who do the majority of the difficult work to place goods into the economic system ultimately end up with only a small percentage of the overall profit. And the third aspect of the domination system is what Borg and Crossan call religious legitimization. The system is legitimized by saying this is God's will. And at the time that the Roman Empire ruled the area that included Jerusalem and Nazareth and Bethlehem and all the other places that you hear about in the Christian scriptures, the Jewish leaders had in effect gone to work for the Roman Empire. And as I said, they had their good reasons. It provided for their family. It allowed them to practice their religion. They even figured out a way to make a profit from it. Now, you can look at your various news sources, liberal or conservative, and you can see how and where Islam, Judaism, and Christian expressions of religion are clearly aligned with the political powers in the countries where they are located. And, and again, I refer to my own history. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a church where we had an American flag and a Christian flag at the front of the church. Now, you won't see that in the sanctuary here, but I imagine that in most Christian churches in this city, you will find an American flag, a Christian flag, and because you're in Texas, a Lone Star flag. So that we have figured out a way to put religion and country together. Right? There was a um, family here a number of years ago that donated to the church a large American flag to put in the sanctuary. And when their offer was declined, um, they did not take it well. Now, you, you, you look at these and you just see if you can find any parallels to this 
in our country. And you cannot read the Jesus narratives without seeing that Jesus and his early followers took this on. The titles that are given to Jesus in telling of his birth and death are titles that had been given to Caesar. Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. This is what Julius Caesar was called. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a title that was given to Herod. And so when Jesus' disciples decide to tell the story, they just took those titles and put Put them in the Jesus category. You know, they created stories that are so loud, we're still hearing them. I mean, everybody here, whether you read the Bible or not, whether you grew up in church or not, you know the story of Jesus going into the temple and turning over the tables of the money changers. Everybody knows that story. And and you know that he did it with the eyes of the Roman government watching him and knowing that that was what he was doing. And, and many Jesus scholars say that um, this is the tipping point for Jesus. The powers that be began to take seriously that he was a threat to their power and they began to plot how they might get rid of this thorn in their side. And this story is also about how far the powers that be will go to protect their status. Now, I don't know about you, but I see these things playing out in the system in our country. It's hard to see because we love our country. We do not want to be critical of our country. But the rich and powerful are that. They're powerful. And they call the shots. When we were on the the trip to the Balkans uh, a couple years ago, our guide, after he got to know us um, better, said, um, why do you Americans say you live in a democracy? Your president didn't receive the majority of votes cast in the election. There's a long silence. And then some guy tried to explain the electoral college system to the guy. (laughs) And our guide said, uh, that's not a democracy. A democracy is where the majority wins. So you put the question into Google, is the United States a democracy, and see what comes up. I was in a group some time ago, and a conversation was such that I suggested that we, like many other countries, ought to make Election Day a national holiday. No work. It would be like Christmas with no gifts. And the constraints on people about having to be at work would be taken off so that everybody would be free to vote if they wanted to. And you would have thought, based on the reactions that I got, that I had suggested that we all go vegan at a beef eaters convention. People can vote by mail if they want to. Anybody can vote. They just put in on and on. It's a complicated issue. If people in positions of power and wealth feel like they're about to lose either power or wealth, they get angry and scared. Who are you to tell me what to do or some other reaction like that? If people who are marginalized feel the system is rigged against them, they begin to lose hope and to give up. 
They become a self-fulfilling prophecy, a drag on the system, or they become rebellious. And you get the French Revolution. The American dream isn't a dream if it exploits anyone at any level for any reason. And now this is where Jesus comes in. Because the Jesus story is about, among other things, how far love will go for the sake of justice. And I think we need to face it, that it is a challenge for those of us who say that we want to follow Jesus or want to figure out what it means to pray, thy will be done on earth, or as Neil Klotz Douglas translates it, let each of our actions bear fruit in accordance with your desire. It's hard for us to figure that out if we don't open our eyes. And, and, and Jesus' plan for the world was that love would lift everybody up and leave no one behind. So he says, do you think that I came to play nice? So he confronted those who used their power. But the story doesn't stop with that. The story continues with the resurrection, resurrecting power of hope and love. I'm always interested in how people, uh, different people define to them what it means to be Christian. My definition is uh, that to be Christian is to have a relationship, a growing relationship with the God of Jesus, with the faith that that relationship will not leave us unchanged. And, and, and that we have a way of, of getting feedback in our work, our spiritual work, with how we are in doing with growing in love and peace and joy and all of that. I've read a lot of Shelby Spong over the years, and only this week did I read this by him. Christianity is not about saving people from their sins. It's about expanding the sense of what it means to be human. What Christianity does is lift us beyond the survival mentality into, the, into a kind of humanity that can give itself away in love. That's what the Jesus story is all about. And one of the values in knowing Jesus is that he shows us what this love looks like. It looks like healing people who are hurt. It looks like feeding people who are hungry. It looks like loving and welcoming people who are shunned. It looks like defending people who are overwhelmed and can't take care of themselves. It looks like grieving with people who have lost what and who matters most to them. It looks like having a meaningful conversation over a cool drink of water. It looks like an exuberant celebration at a wedding. It looks like a man being executed because he would not stand down. It looks like a community of love and joy and fearlessness and forgiveness and hope that grew out of that dark event. Last week I used a phrase in here and I said, don't go right, don't go left, go deep. And I think that Jim Wallace is the first one I heard use that phrase a long time ago. Wish I had thought of it. I think what that phrase means is if you're conservative, don't abandon that. If you're a liberal, don't abandon that. But please don't let those labels define you or confine you. Because any label you put on yourself is a trap. Nothing lasts. 
Nighttime doesn't last. Neither does light, daylight. Ying is not the whole truth, but neither is yang. They fit together. Can't have one without the other. So in speaking against the system, I want to be clear that I am grateful and blessed by where I live, the privileges that I have experienced, most of which were just handed to me because I was a white male who lived in the system where white men run the show. You know, I am an idealist about um, conflict. I really think that with education, we can have a more peaceful world. I look back over history, and we've never not had war. I mean, wars are for the most part futile. Yeah, I also remember when I stepped up and over the rise of the American cemetery in Luxembourg and saw the crosses of men, some of them as young as 16, who died to stop Hitler. I, when I first saw this, I just broke into involutional sobs. If they hadn't done that, we wouldn't be here. I remember going to a talk to hear uh, Elie Wiesel, the Nobel, Prize, Nobel Prize winning writer and survivor of the Holocaust, admonishing us, never forget. Never forget. All of that and more comes from living in this world. But mystical, prophetic, spiritual teachers guide us not to get our identity from any of the worlds that we live in. As Jesus put it, learn to be in the world but not of it. And, and one of the, the first things I ever remember hearing Richard Rohr say had to deal with the dangers of what he called the three Ps, power, position, and possession. So Jesus' plan was to make uh, love the primary goal. His, his desire was to create a world where everybody would be raised out of the tombs that any domination system keeps them stuck in. A world where everybody is understood, welcome, where all are treated as equal. We're not there. And if we don't know that and we can't embrace it, which is what I'm going to talk about next week, if we can't embrace what is, I mean really embrace what is, if we keep it out there somewhere, we'll never change it. We don't have a good answer for, can't you read the signs of the time? Now, <clears throat> unless you're here for the first time, most of you know that there's an aspect of my personality that uh, I like to think of as being playful. Um, others think of it as being a smart ass. But um, I love jokes, I love plays on words, I love puns and all of that. It's an affliction that I have. I mean, I, seriously, it is. It, it is. We, I won't go into that now. And, and one of the things that I love is, as you know, the cartoons that I show at the beginning of the class, and then there's signs that I love. Now, these days, in the days of Photoshop, there are a lot of signs that circulate on the internet that are just not true. They didn't happen. They're funny, but they're not true. Like this one. That's a great sign, but it didn't happen. I'm sorry, it didn't happen. 
those of you who are in the advertising business know that would have never gotten to a billboard stage. It just would not have happened. So I have signs that I have taken. This one uh, was on, the, on Westheimer uh, near um, St. Luke's Methodist Church, which I just had to stop my car some time ago and take this. I think this, you know, I, th this is a great... 20 bucks for, for answers and solutions. This used to be in the 59 Diner. <laughs> and then the people who owned it changed it. And, and uh, then they put this one back up, but they changed it to any child left un unattended will be given a cup of coffee and a new puppy. <laughs> This one is still in my grocery store. I mean, <laughs> healthy living, beer and wine, shortcut. All right. I, I, I took a couple on a trip in, in Scotland one time. It says, don't knock the weather. Nine-tenths of people couldn't start a conversation if it didn't change once in a while. And we were so back in the, in, in the wooded area in, on the Isle of Skye, we went to this place to get a coffee, and it said, no Wi-Fi, no mobile signal, relax. Uh, we have a hard time with that. This, this, this is a true one. I wonder the people who put those up didn't see the craziness of them. The reason I'm putting these toward the end of the talk instead of the beginning is because if I'd put them at the beginning, this is all I'd done the whole talk. I would just show signs. So here's the last one. I don't know. I'd like to see that child. So You know how the fundamentalists take things literally? They say that you should. So here's an angel speaking to, to God. Didn't you send a guy a sign last week? Well, apparently he didn't get it. This week he's asking for another sign. <laughs> it was a sign. You know, when I, I, I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago that my own spiritual director asked me at the beginning of our meeting, she will say, How, how's your connection to um, connecting presence. I think it kind of causes you to go back over your week and think, where have you seen? Where have you heard? Where have you experienced? Where have you been challenged? So what are we to believe or have faith in? And how are we to live? Uh, on the one hand, we have what the mystics of all traditions have been saying for millennia, one of the reasons that I'm so energized by uh, the kind of things that I first heard Ilya Delio say and that Holly Hudley writes beautifully about in the blogs that are on the Ordinary Life website, these insights that come from us now are things that the mystics have been saying for millennia. Of all traditions, read Ravia. Read a book called Love Poems from God and, and see the, the messages that have been around for a long time. 
And, and in these mystical writings, many not from our tradition, there is more lucidity, coherence, and centrality than you will find in any Christian creed. Certainly than in adhering to the five principles of fundamentalism. Now, inevitably, somebody will hear this and they will say, yeah, but what about Jesus being the only way? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the light. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. There has been a time in my life and in yours as well, at least for many of you, not for all of you, when you looked into the face and eyes of another person and said, you are the only one in the world for me. It didn't mean that there were not others. It just meant that you were picking a path to walk. And that's Jesus for you, for me. And I, I'm going to be clear. I am talking about the Jesus of Nazareth. I am not talking about that disembodied spirit that I heard about in the Baptist church that said, if you just let Jesus into your heart, you'll go to heaven when you die. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Jewish mystic in the prophetic tradition. I'm talking about Jesus in his particularity, his historical concreteness as a Jew, as a prophet, as a victim of the domination system, as someone crucified and as living within his followers. This is particularly powerfully important in understanding and, and living our lives in light of what the cosmologists are now telling us. Jesus makes it clear the shape our lives need to take. The state of this world should provide a guiding light for what it means for us to follow Jesus. Jesus had a mystical experience that revealed to him that he was one with everything, one with everyone. That's wisdom. And out of that wisdom, he lived his life and he offered his teachings for example, and this I think speaks to the divisions that we experience in our world, he said, this is my translation, this is how I want you to conduct yourself. If you enter your place of worship and become aware that there is a separation between you and your neighbor, and you remember how he defined neighbor, right? you leave immediately and go to that person and make things right. Of course, if we really did that, we'd never take the collection because we'd all be gone. If we're able to read the signs, our response requires not only ongoing transformation of ourselves, which is, again, what we'll deal with next week, but the ongoing transformation of the places where we live, our society. What was the case in Jesus' time is true in ours as well, as it has been throughout this, the history. Empires take shape where some nations or groups, they're usually led by men, take advantage of and oppress others. And responding to Jesus leads us to confront and seek to change these structures. This practice of justice for everyone is compassion, wisdom, and compassion. Re reading the signs of the time lets us know that we cannot have one without the other. Or better, to have one without the other is to have neither. 
This, I think, is the hope of learning to read the signs of the times and working to heal what divides us, both within and without. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I will see you here next week. Thank you.